This episode discusses domestic violence and abuse and may not be suitable for some. Today's guest has been a police officer in New Hampshire for nearly a decade and teaches a general safety class for young women. Despite being a police officer and professionally trained on how to identify domestic abuse for her job, she found herself a survivor of domestic violence. Her goal now is to empower and educate young women to recognize the signs of toxic relationships and to avoid becoming victims of abuse. Holding degrees and masters in writing, she has penned a new young adult novel aiming to shine light on toxic relationships and dating violence titled, He Loves Me Not. Episode 43, Nina Corgren. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Thanks for joining me on the podcast, Nina. Welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, you've written an incredible book, He Loves Me Not, which is based on your story. It is. Um, it's not technically a true story. It is a fiction. I did make it up. Um, but all of the emotions and the feelings are all real and based on my experiences. Okay. And your experiences is an abusive relationship, an emotional an abusive relationship that you had. And you ended up marrying this person. It was your first relationship that you ever had. So talk me through where you first met your now ex-husband. Spoiler alert, she got out of the relationship. (laughs) (laughs) I did. Um, But it took a long time because I met met this man in the sixth grade. Um, How old are you in sixth grade? What's the... Sixth grade um, like would probably be old? like 11, yeah. Okay, same, yeah, okay. So um, he was a friend of the families. Our parents were friends, so he was, you know, someone that was just always around and always in my life. And so our relationship at first was really just, especially we were so young, it really was just friends and kind of platonic at first and just over because we spent so much time together and there was always that consistency it developed over the years and um it developed into the point where we did we got engaged and we got married and um you would think after all that time you'd be able to notice um red flags but he he was tricky you know and when people talk about abusive relationships, you think that it's going to be super obvious and that it's, it's going to be so hard to miss. But those those red flags are not, especially especially when they start so slowly and um, are over such a long period of time. So when you say that you were 11 when you met, so did you ever break up? Did you ever experience any other relationships to compare this one with? Um, you know, I had other relationships before, but they were high school relationships. And yeah. um, well, you're so, 11. It's not like it's a yeah. And even um, so, we probably were probably 18 before we, you know, officially made a made it a a couple. And how so old I were did you? 18. So, so we you were friends for a while, seven years. Okay, yeah. 
And so we did, we each had other relationships. And even when we were dating other people, if he had, he would have a girlfriend and I would have a boyfriend and he would um, be really controlling over me. And he'd always say like, you know, that person's not good enough for you. And he would say things to the other person, um, telling them, you know, you're not treating her right and things like that. He would like try to intimidate and control. And it was jealousy. And the did way you that, think at the time though, that that was just him looking out for you and how wonderful. I did. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. I took it. I was flattered because, yeah. you know, this person cares so much like about me brother. that he's yeah. exactly, he's yeah. protecting me. And so it, it became like this joke, like, Oh, the way that he, you know, looks out for you and, um, you guys are going to end up together forever because obviously he cares so much about you. So um, other people saw it that way as this really protective older brother type good thing. And so I saw it that way too. But yeah. looking back, it was it was truly control. It was he didn't want anyone else to get close to me and he didn't want me to to get over him or, or not be part of him. What made you decide to go from friends to a relationship at the age of 18? Um, he was leaving for the military and he was going to be stationed in Hawaii. And um, so we had always kind of gone back and forth about the idea of dating. Um, whenever one of us was single, it was always kind of that jo joke, like, you know, you're my, you're my next or, or we're going to end up together. And so we were both single at the time and it just sort of made sense. So it was purely because he was deploying. Essentially. Yeah. It was, it, it made sense to just go for it, try it out. Okay. And did you enter into it thinking because you'd had this friendship for seven years, this, this is, it like you were attracted to him you obviously knew him personality wise you were okay with him as a person at that stage um so was it that you knew that this was going to be a, a long-term full-on relationship yeah I considered him my high school sweetheart even though we technically didn't date in high school that was in my mind we were high school sweethearts that were going to make the run for this because you were emotionally it, it cheating on all of your boyfriends weren't you Nina <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, because we just had this, you know, it, it felt to me like yeah. we had this deep connection because who else do you know for that long, you know, and, um, somebody that knows every little thing about you, like that's obviously somebody that you should spend the rest of your life with was kind of my thinking at the time. So how long were you in a relationship for before he deployed? Um, not very long. Not very long. It was probably just a couple months. And where did he deploy to? So he was stationed in Hawaii and he was deployed to Iraq. So even so for the whole whole four years that he was in the military, he was a whole country away from me. And he was almost just as far when he was in Iraq as he was when he was at his at his base. Okay, in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. All right. The reason why I ask that is I think that there could be a parallel drawn in terms of, well, did the abuse happen after he came back from that deployment? Was it something that he, you know, they all say that if if you touch war, war touches you. So was it a situation that because of that experience he changed? Um, so 
I think that the military in general, maybe not even so much just the deployment, but being in the military, that um, that kind of macho type environment, I think he already had the characteristics for that to kind of go to his head because I can pick out specific things from when we were younger that would have been toxic if I had known what toxic relationships were back then. Mm. Um, And so I think being in the military just kind of amplified all of those tendencies that he already had, not to mention while he was in the military, he started drinking really heavily and started getting into some of those other substances that kind of have free range on military bases, it seems. So allegedly, um, allegedly. Um, So, you know, that obviously had a big effect too. Um, He was an, he was an angry drunk. So when you throw that much, anger and alcohol on top of an already toxic personality, uh, things don't go well. So he definitely, that, that lifestyle affected him for sure. If he was an angry drunk and he was, I mean, the military is a drinking culture. You can agree or disagree with that. I I know it is in, um, most military situations, you know, they, everyone sort of loves to decompress and have a drink. And I think that's a cultural thing around the world with, with most militaries. Um, weren't they seeing that angry behavior and wasn't he then being disciplined by them? Um, so he was actually honored, dishonorably discharged from the military. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that says a lot. Yes. And they did see it. Um, he was, charged with a DUI while he was out in Hawaii uh, driving under the influence. Because um, they take it quite seriously now, drinking, don't they? They're trying to stamp it out. Yeah. Yes. And so there, I think there were, I think there were the signs and they saw them and he played it to me like he was being picked on, like they were, you know, out to get him because his career was going in a good, you know, direction and somebody had it out for him. And so they were, accusing him of things he hadn't done like you know it was just and I wasn't there I was you know a whole country away so everything he said I was like you know believing and he he led me on whether it was him leading himself on too I don't know but he definitely he definitely wasn't telling me the truth well I think and and I say this as a someone that's completely not in in any sort of um, health related industry and and no clinical experience in psychology or whatever but for my own two cents I think that people can if they're not taking responsibility they have to come up with excuses so for that's sure my two cents uh, for what it's worth <laughs> for sure when so was he coming he he was based in Hawaii so was he coming back to the states to say I don't know what state you're in but was he coming back to the states to see you um, so he would get basically two weeks sometime in the middle of the year, and then he'd come back for the holidays usually was kind of how the schedule worked. And so I am, we lived in Massachusetts. We grew up in Massachusetts, which is on the East Coast, and Hawaii is all the way off of the West Coast. So it was a whole country away, and it's an expensive plane ticket. So there weren't a lot of visits, mm. um, just enough to kind of keep keep that anticipation you know it was that long distance relationship of you get this this little brief honeymoon window where everything was perfect right and then it'd go back to 
the distance where you were only communicating and we were in different time zones. So it was, you know, communicating via text message most of the time. So it was easy to kind of get lost and romanticize what was happening. And um, Mm. when you say that he was home for the holidays, we have a different holidays to you guys. We don't do Thanksgiving and stuff, obviously, obvious reasons. Um, How long is the holiday period when he was coming home? What would be that duration? Usually about the same two weeks. So probably, you know, it was probably four weeks the whole year, but you in two, two week drop um, sections. So that's really not long enough to um, settle into a routine with somebody and get to know them. I mean, if you've had a friendship with them, you're not living with them. And then you just started a relationship and he's uh, stationed in Hawaii and then deployed to, um, to Iraq. So you're not really having that relationship experience of having that close contact whilst you're in a relationship. How, so did that, did that whole period, was that four years while he was, did that continue for the full four years while he was in the military? Essentially. Yes. And, but at the same time I was in college, so I was, you know, living in a dorm room and doing my classes and all of that stuff. So it felt, it felt like we were both doing what we were supposed to be doing. Mm. So it, it didn't feel as, you know, it was hard and it was, um, you know, you'd get emotional and whatever, but it didn't feel like something that not that other people weren't doing because lots of my friends at the time were at different colleges than their significant others and things like that. So it seemed very normal and natural. When he got discharged from the military and came back, were you guys living with each other? He, he did come back. At that point, I had already um, graduated. I had um, started my first job and I had an apartment and he did. He moved uh, right into my apartment actually when he got out. So what what did you study and what was your first job? So I actually studied English in college, um, which is where my nerdy writing habit came from in my first book. Um, but my my job, my first job, I was a police officer. I'm a certified police officer in the state of New Hampshire. So that was your very first job out of college? Mm-hmm. Okay. It was. So I don't know if it was college or uni. I don't know what you guys refer to it as, but we'll just say <laughs> college. It's uni to us. Um, Same thing. <laughs> I think there's a difference though, isn't it? What's the four, is it university four years and college something different over there? I don't know. So we have, we use the word university and college pretty interchangeably. Like oh, okay. some schools are called, you know, whatever college and some are called whatever university. And sometimes the one I went to changed halfway through and decided they were going to be a university now. So... <laughs> So it doesn't really matter. Okay, good to know. No, not here. <laughs> so um, you started being a police officer. When he moved in, straight back, how long had you been, how long were you a copper for before you ended up, um, before he came back and moved in with you? Was there a lap overlap? Yeah, we had been a couple at that point for <laughs> at least three years officially, okay. but we had never lived together we had never we had never really spent more than two weeks together um I think you misunderstood my question oh sorry how how long had you been a copper for so a police officer it's Australian slang (laughs) (laughs) I thought I'm gonna have to translate this (laughs) a copper is a cop but police officer (laughs) yeah those listening in America (laughs) sorry about that um no yeah so there was um 
I was probably going into my second year of being actually on the job out of the academy at that point. Second year out of the academy. So you'd been on the beat for two years. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And so we, the way that we do it here in New Hampshire, you kind of, you get hired by a, a police department and then they send you to an academy that's um, three months long. And so you kind of do the whole academy thing that is, um, get all your training and then you come back and you work for the department that hired you. Okay. So when he moved in, how did that go initially? So it was hard at first because he was adapting to civilian life out of the military. So um, he didn't have a job. He was unemployed and I was supporting us. And he moved into my apartment. You know, my name was on the lease. And he was used to, you know, carrying a gun and being in charge and being someone that, you know, had a leadership position. So to go from that to um, kind of dependent on me and then me also have what's considered a more masculine profession, Mm. I think he really struggled with that. And um, I think that played into a lot of his anger and frustration. And it because he had so much free time because he wasn't working, it led to a lot of drinking. Mm. Um, So it was it was hard when he first moved in and I made a lot of excuses for it. And I would say like, um, you know, he's adapting and he's having trouble getting used to civilian life and this is hard for him. And so that would would be a logical, a logical assumption. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 But it went, you know, when it went on to started going on more than a year and he still hadn't been able to find a job. And it was because he would say, well, you know, I need to, I, I need to become, do something that matters with my life. And I need to be carrying a gun. Like I'm going to be a police officer too, but he put no effort into finding those type of jobs. And so he just didn't have one. Um, is, that, is that because of the dishonorable discharge stopped him from being a police officer or? Yes. Okay. okay. Yes. Yeah. He, um, you know, there there's probably some place that he might have had a chance of becoming a police officer, but it would have been a very slim chance, I think, with that on his record. Does that stop you? I don't know what the American laws are, but does that stop you getting a firearm over there as well? No. Okay. I don't think much <laughs> does over there, to be honest, from, from sitting around the other side of the country, uh, or the world, rather. No what? idea about America. <laughs> Um, okay, so how did things escalate from him just being adjusting to the military to you going, this is a toxic relationship, when you had never thought of that before? What was the progression, I suppose? So to be totally honest, it escalated without me noticing Um, you know, he was very emotionally abusive in the sense that he was constantly belittling my opinions. Um, he was always trying to put me down. Like if I had some, if something was successful for me, he would say, well, you wouldn't have been able to do that if I hadn't done this for you. Or if, you know, it was always some, he had to claim some part of, of everything. Um, just talk a bit more into your mic. Oh, sorry. He was 
always pointing out my insecurities, which he knew absolutely everything about me because we had grown up together and he knew so he knew everything that would make me uncomfortable. So he would wait until we were in like a big group of people, like, you know, all my coworkers would be at a work party or something. And he'd like pull out this story that would, he knew would humiliate me and like poke fun and like make sure that everybody was laughing at me. And it wasn't with me kind of thing. It was, it was at me. And so it was like a form of bullying. And then afterwards, we'd talk about it. And he'd be like, Oh, you can't take a joke. And you know, it was I was just joking around. And so it, there was always that, like, in the back of your mind, you're like, am I being too sensitive? But they would, it just never ended. And then what did your, I mean, and I think that it's important to point out as a woman in a male dominated environment, that's, I mean, even if, I suppose, even if it wasn't a male-dominated environment, you wouldn't want in a work situation, you don't want that to happen. So the fact that then you're trying to prove, as a woman, you kind of have to go that extra step to prove yourself in a male-dominated environment. And I, have, I haven't been a police officer, but I've worked in male-dominated environments. It's hard. Like you kind of have to be almost twice as good as the guys to get that recognition and to prove yourself. And so to have that happening to you, would be awful. What were your colleagues saying to you? Were they recognizing this? Um, I had a couple close colleagues that did. And so they knew me a little bit better. I think I, as a female police officer, I always felt like I had to work harder than everyone else that I had to prove something every single day I went into work and felt like I had to prove myself today and tomorrow I'll have to prove myself over again. And so I had kind of developed this personality, this version of my personality that was, you know, the fearless, badass chick that I wanted my coworkers to see. You can say bitch. You nearly said bitch. It's fine. You can say it. It's the internet. <laughs> exactly. You know, <laughs> I wanted. You're a badass bitch, Nina. <laughs> I, that's exactly what I wanted my coworkers to see because I didn't want them to doubt my abilities to do my job. And so here... I'm like trying to portray this, this version of myself, Mm. which wasn't a total stretch, but like, you know, I wasn't telling my coworkers that my guilty pleasure was coming home and watching musicals, Broadway musicals at the end of the day. But, you know, if you're in a life and death situation, you kind of want to know that the person beside you, regardless of who they are and what sex they are, is going to back you up and support you. So, right. I get that. So, you know, I was working hard to keep that kind of reputation and I think he realized that. And so he would, he would make these comments and tell these stories and like just undermine what I was trying to portray. And it was, it was humiliating. And I would feel like, you know, I don't know if my coworkers are looking at me differently. There were definitely the few that knew me a little, a little bit better that I had become really close with that I think did have questions about him and our relationship but I think were these male co-workers yes yes. and I think because they were male co-workers they were afraid to say anything because it didn't feel like their place or it would feel inappropriate even though I think I think personally that we were close enough that they could have said something and I wouldn't have been offended but it's a hard position for a man to be in because you don't want to particularly with particularly with knowing where the line is, but also it's your personal life, it's not work. I think there's concerns in regards to what reports would be placed, you know, if they felt that Mm -hmm. they were then, you know, you felt that they were overstepping the line, but they were just concerned. 
I think that puts them in a, a difficult position to give them the benefit of the doubt. Absolutely. And I don't, I don't blame them at all. And we've had some of them, actually, we've talked about it since. And that is how they felt. They, yeah. you know, they question things and they, they feel guilty now looking back that they didn't say anything, but it's not their fault because it was, you know, it was on me. Yeah. But it's also, I mean, the expressions shoot the messenger exists for a reason and I'm not talking literally, but you know what I mean? Like, if they were the one to point it out, you're going to lash out at them rather than admit the truth initially anyway. It's probably true. Yep. Yeah. When did it start escalating so you were thinking, hang on, there are red flags? Because up until this point, you didn't really think that there were red flags. And yep. I think that that's uh, an important – and I'm saying this as, as someone that's not in any form of counselling or medical profession or anything like that. But I, as, a, as a woman, I think it's important to, to note that, that things can – very gradually creep and when it's gradual it's like the whole frog in the boiling water if you put it in the boiling water it'll jump out if you slowly turn it on it stays in there and boils so it's important to note that that things can creep and this is someone I would imagine in your profession you'd be dealing with domestic violence and abuse situations a lot Mm -hmm. coming across it this is something I was trained in I went to extra, like, so we're trained in the academy on this. And then I had been to additional trainings on this. I would have considered myself an expert in domestic violence situations. And I would see these red flags in other situations. I would go into calls and I would see these things and I would recognize them and be able to talk to, to the individual about them. And so for me to not be able to see them in my own relationship, I would have assumed absolutely I would be the first person to recognize those things. And I wasn't. I didn't see them until one night I was on a call. I responded to a call for a domestic and I spent a little bit of time in the house talking to the two individuals. And, um, you know, I knew what was happening in that house and I knew that the female in this in this situation was making excuses and was in a in a toxic situation and there was nothing that I could say to her that was going to change her mind and I went back to my cruiser after that feeling really mad because I wanted this woman to you know get away from this situation I wanted to be able to help her and for some reason, all of a sudden it hit me that everything I had just said to that woman applied to me too. That the reason I was probably so angry was because that man in that situation reminded me so much of the man that I went home to every night. And I literally broke down in my cruiser when I realized that because at that point I had been married for over a year I had known this person since I was 11 years old. So you're talking, I don't know, 14 years at that point. And I couldn't believe that I had missed this. Um, And I had, I hadn't seen it at all. And now looking back, there are so many things that I can't believe I missed. There were so many red flags. There were so many warning signs. There were so many things that weren't even warning signs. They were like bright blaring, like this is really toxic and bad. Mm. And I didn't see any of them because I didn't want to. Now you said to me before we started the podcast, you said that it was mostly emotional abuse, but there was some 
some forms of con- he would put his hands on you, but he would it would be more of in a controlling situation. Explain, explain that for the listeners so they understand how abuse can manifest in your situation. Yeah, so I feel like a lot of people when they think of physical abuse in a relationship, they picture those bruises and black eyes and, you know, dark sunglasses and makeup covering covering those bruises, but in my situation, I can honestly say that this man never struck me. You know, he never hauled off and punched me. He what he would do was almost like covert. So he would grab either my shoulder right under my collarbone or my thigh right above my knee, and he would squeeze to the point where it would hurt, but not to the point where, um, you know, it would cause physical damage. It was like just enough pain so that I knew he could cause more pain if he wanted to. It was a form of intimidation and it was a form of control. And for a long time, I didn't consider that physical abuse because there were never any bruises. There were never any marks. Um, But he was causing me pain and he was putting his hands on me physically in a way that I didn't want and I didn't like, but he would do it anyway. And that is physical abuse. And it's not something that we consider physical abuse a lot of times when we think about it because we, we want that like violent act of the, the punch or the slap or the kick. And sometimes it is really subtle and, it, and it's still just as damaging. When you were in the cruiser and you broke down, when you go out on a job, are you in a pair in the cruisers? Or was it just yourself in the cruiser? So that that depends on what department you work for. And here in New Hampshire, in most of the cities and towns, we don't have enough police officers for that. So almost all of New Hampshire, you're just by yourself in, in your cruiser. So I was alone in my cruiser. There were other people working, mm. um, but they would have been in their own cruisers. So did anyone see you break down? No. Um, I went... You know, I went to my cruiser and I had driven a little ways down the road, which is kind of typical because we kind of pull over and you have your computer and you type some notes and things like that. So I had pulled off to the side of the road and I was sitting there a little ways from the call. And that's when it hit me that, you know, everything I was typing up, all, all these notes, I could have put my own name in front of it and it would have been applicable. And I, I did. I sat there for a long time and I was so grateful that no other calls came in because I just would not have been able to go because I, I had I had a breakdown and I actually went back to the station and, and essentially said, I don't feel well. I need to go home. And my, you know, my sergeant was kind of like, oh, I hope you feel better. It was kind of a slow night and I hope you feel better. And I actually only made it out to the parking lot before I broke down again. I didn't even I didn't even make it in, like further than the parking lot. And it was just that realization of years and years of denial, essentially, mm. hitting me all at once. I I just didn't know what to do. That emotional damn burst. It did. It, mm. it burst and it hit me hard. He's living with you. So what was the, what did you do? What was the next step? Because if you, I'm assuming that you're worried about going home and saying, get out. Not only is he living with me, at this point we were married. Um, 
so I went home that I went home for two days and kind of locked on eggshells because now I had come to this realization and I was seeing all of these things now. So like he would say something or he would do something and it would register now. Mm. And so I was kind of like collecting myself and, um, was there a period of, I think this is the case, but I kind of have to re reaffirm that it is. Yeah. You know, it, I wanted to believe that I was overreacting, I think, mm. because the thought of upending my life like that was embarrassing. And I was ashamed because at this, because I still hadn't accepted the fact that as a police officer, I would miss this. Mm. So there was a lot of shame. So I went home and kept looking for that, like the bright light, right? I was looking for some obvious sign that I was overreacting, that I was wrong and I wasn't finding those signs. I was finding and the opposite. And probably also that he was redeemable, that you could change him, that you could fix the situation, that, you know. Yeah, and I think I think there had been a lot of things that I had thought I had changed. You know, I thought I could change his drinking habits, and I mm. thought I could change, you know, he came home from the Army as a smoker as well. And, like, you know, there were all these things that I thought I could change about him, and so I did maybe there is still a chance for us kind of thing because divorce is a scary word. Yeah. You know, especially we had been married about a year. So that was kind of embarrassing. Like we, you know, we only made it a year, you know, quote unquote. And then there was the fact that I was a police officer. Like, how was I going to explain that my whole life was falling apart when I'm supposed to be the one that keeps everything together? So what did you do when you went home? What did you do? You spent two days walking around in eggshells mm -hmm. and then what? Then there was the point where there was no denying it. I had, I had really realized that my only options were to stay in this relationship that I now realized was abusive or I had to figure out a way to end it. And I was actually locked in my bathroom, sitting on the floor, um, you know, against my tub. And I had texted my best friend and basically let it all out. Like I said, everything that was on my mind, like, I think that I need help. I think that I'm in this situation. And at the time, uh, my best friend was also one of, um, was a police officer. It was a, one of my male police officer friends. And I was so afraid that he was going to basically slam the door in my face and be like, I can't believe that you got yourself in this situation. And he did such a good job of supporting me um, and helped me make my plan. And so I was going to, you know, get my stuff together like I was going to work. And then instead of going to work, I, I ended up at a, a safer location, not, not this particular friend's house because we believed that he would have come looking for me there, mm. but a, a friend's house that he didn't know about. So I ended up at that house and I was there for a week. Um, and I did most of like my kind of planning. And then I came home um, and addressed him and basically was like, this is the end. Like, you know, I, I want a divorce. And, and I was prepared for the worst. I was prepared for things to get violent. I was prepared for things to get physical. I had a backup plan. I had a friend 
um, you know, basically waiting at the end of the driveway for backup type type situation. I mean, I was scared and it was hard for me to admit that I was scared because again, I'm supposed to be able to take care of myself. You know, I'm a police officer. This shouldn't be happening to me is all that kept running through my head. And the fact was it was happening and I was in a scary situation and luckily it actually went really well. I think I caught him off guard enough that it was kind of a, he was, he hadn't been drinking luckily. And it was enough of a shock that he just kind of like, didn't know what to do. Um, so, and so it didn't really get ugly until after that point. What had he done for that week? Cause you just went missing. Essentially I went missing and I think part of what I should have realized is he didn't really care. Um, He basically spent the week partying and every once in a while he'd shoot me angry text messages like, where are you? Um, You know, what's, why aren't you here? What's this? Like, you know, there were angry kind of not coherent text messages that I would get, but there was no real concern. Um, And so I think that he assumed that I would be back and that, you know, things would just go back to the way that they were. Had you let your work know at this stage in case he called 911 to report you missing? No, I knew he wouldn't um, report me missing because I stayed in like enough contact via text message that like he knew I was alive. Mm. Um, And I was So so afraid of work finding out. And I was basically afraid of getting in trouble at work for being a victim. And so I did not want my work to find out at all. And, and probably not them. wanting to sit your, your colleagues to see you in a different light as that victim as well, to see exactly. you that weaker person. Exactly. And that well, was one of the reasons that. why I didn't um, report it because when you report something, it goes in the police log and then there's a record of it that all of the other police officers can see. And I didn't want my name in that log. So if I had gone to try to get like a protection order or anything like that, it would have been in that log. And then everyone would have known about it. And I was afraid of that. So I felt like I had to deal with it on my own to avoid embarrassment. When you admitted everything to your best mate, who was also a, pl- a, a police officer, and um, I think it, it, male, I think it's important to notify the ge- uh, to identify the gender here. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that he was wonderful. Did he say to you you should come out to work and say, "Hey, this is what's going on"? Did he advise you of that at all? He was really good about letting me kind of control the situation. He. Yeah which I think was really important because I felt like I had no control over anything that was happening in my house. So to be able to control that was, was at least somewhat empowering. Mm. And I think that's important for folks that are trying to help a friend through the situation is that if you were to just tell the friend what you think they should do, that's essentially the same thing that their controlling partner would have been doing. So that doesn't really help. Um, But he was great about, being supportive of whatever it was I wanted. And so I kind of weighed the pros and cons with him and said, like, if I do this, then work knows. And then blah, blah, blah. Uh, I went down the rabbit hole of how 
embarrassing that could be. Mm. And so he was like, he was like, if that's what you want, then we'll keep it quiet and I will help you kind of, you know, avoid this situation. And so that's the direction that I ended up going in. I don't know if that was the best choice or if it would have been better. Maybe it would have been faster to deal with it another way or or whatnot. But that because of my embarrassment, that's the direction that I went. And I felt like that was the only direction I had because I was trying to keep my reputation intact. When you said initially you took him off guard when you came back after that week and said, I wanted a divorce, I'm leaving you. You then had your plan. So you were packing everything up at that point and moving out. So I actually, and you know, the legalities of it are probably not clear because I don't know that it was a hundred percent truly mine because we were married. Right. I owned the house. Mine was, my was, name was the only one on the house. So I believed in my head that the house was mine. And I think I made him believe that as well. I don't know if that's really true. But but that's how I played it is that this is my house and, and, you know, you need to get lost. So I essentially threw him threw him out. But I didn't stay here until I was sure he was gone. And then probably changed the locks and all that sort of stuff. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned um, quite offhandedly that when you came back, you, you caught him off guard and that he was fine. And it wasn't until later that things went sour. Um, I'm paraphrasing here. Mm-hmm. What happened? When did it sort of turn to being an, okay, he got out, it was fairly amicable to it not being so? When I went to um, serve him with the official paperwork to make the divorce official um he the last kind of control that he had was to mess around with that so he didn't sign the paperwork he so when you don't here in new hampshire when you don't sign the paperwork the judge gets involved and you have to like go to these court hearings and things like that he wouldn't show up for the court hearing so he basically just dragged everything out as far as he could before the court finally said okay and eventually the court just kind of grants it to you if if it goes on like that. But he made it so much harder than it needed to be. And at the same time, he was, you know, talking to my family and to my friends and like telling them different versions of what was going on and making me look bad in that in that case, which was hard at the time. Um, but looking back could have been a lot worse. I lived kind of in fear of him showing up here. I lived kind of in fear of him realizing that, you know, the house wasn't really technically mine until the divorce was final. So I was Did afraid of him. Did you own the house or you leasing the house? I owned the house. Okay. Um, which means because we were married that he technically owned the house, even though my name mm-hmm. was on it. Um, So I was afraid of him showing up here and like breaking in. I was afraid. I even went so far as to be afraid of him like burning the house down in the middle of the night um, while I was, you know, asleep in it. You thought that he was capable of that? Yes. Yep. Right. I got a dog because I was afraid. I figured at least if I had a dog, I, you know, I wasn't alone. Yeah. Um. I, you know, went to extreme measures of putting up like motion detector lights and all of these things that 
kind of made me feel safe. And that was hard too, because here I am a police officer that's supposed to keep other people safe and I don't feel safe in my own home. Mm. Um, so there was, there was a, a long time while this whole thing was being dragged on where I just didn't feel safe anywhere. I was afraid of running into him at the store. I was afraid of running into him just out on the street. Uh, I wouldn't park my car in the driveway. I always made sure it was in the garage because I was afraid of him coming and like slashing my tires and things like that. Like it was just, I lived in fear for a really long time. And even after the divorce was final, I still for a long time had that like constantly looking over my shoulder type mentality. Did you ever think about selling the house and just moving so he didn't know where you were? Yes. Um, And... It was one of those things I went back and forth with almost every day. It was like a daily thing of if I do that, am I giving in? Am I letting him win? Um, you know, am I the one that's suffering because just because of him? Because I'd have to pack up my whole life and like, you know, run away. Um, and so that was a struggle of like, how far do you go before you either give in or let it go? Hmm. And I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if what I did was right. I don't know. I think it's kind of different for everybody. Well, I think that at the end of the day, you did what you felt was right at the time. And that was the right decision for you. You know, that's the only thing that people can can do. Given the fact that you had this revelation and then you realized how toxic the relationship was, When you looked back over the relationship, were there times that you realized that your gut was telling you and your intuition was telling you that something was wrong and you were ignoring that? Or did that just not even come on your radar? I had so many what if moments where I had those feelings, that gut feeling that this wasn't right. Um, There were so many times where I wish I had walked away because it had crossed my mind. It really had. Um, and looking back on it after the fact, I had the ability to say my gut was telling me all along and I was making those excuses and I was saying I can change this. And I was saying it's, you know, it's not because we don't belong together, but it's because of some other reason. There was always something that I could make up in my mind that would convince me otherwise. But once you stepped back and everything was done, and I looked back on it, there were countless times that my gut was telling me I was in trouble. And you ignored it. Mm. Mm-hmm. How long ago did you end up finalizing the divorce? Um, it's been finalized for, I'm trying to do math in my head, <laughs> for four years now. Okay. What, and you can answer this, answer this question or or not. Um, what did that emotional recovery look like for you? I mean, you've got out of a toxic relationship. You've realized how toxic it was. You've known this person since eleven. You really haven't had any other serious relationships. That fear must have been enormous. Not not just fear of, um, not just fear of the being alone, but also that self-worth issues that would come along with that, I would imagine. 
what did that self-healing and recovery look like for you? There was, there was a lot of recovery time. And sometimes I think I'm still recovering. Yeah. Um, I had, you know, doubts about my own ability to judge people for a long time yeah. because I mean, here's somebody I married this man yeah. and look at what I missed. I had trust issues yeah. for a really long time. Um, when I did start dating, I found that I was always expecting the worst out mm. of, out of people. Like I was expecting them to treat me in a certain way. And I was like prepared to run at the like smallest thing. And I was always thinking that their intentions were the worst intentions instead of giving them the benefit but that, of the but doubt. That's because that was your normal though. Right. Yeah. And so that was really hard to get over. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was, there was, and maybe always will be some, um, you know, self, self-worth issues mm -hmm. where, you know, you just, in the back of your mind, you question yourself. Um, and I've come a long way in realizing my self-worth, but in those dark minutes, there's always that little voice in the back of your mind that says, you know, maybe he was right. And I've quieted that voice a lot. Um, but I'd be lying if I said it wasn't there sometimes. Mm. And for a long time, I let, I was still letting him control me because what, what I was doing, even though we were not together and he, the fact that he was still out there somewhere controlled a lot of what I did and how I acted and, um, just a lot of my life. And so there came a point where I realized that, that I was doing certain things because of him, even though, even though he wasn't physically here. And so there was a lot of things I had to let go of and like really work to change about my own routines and my own, like those type of things to kind of rid my life of the remnants of that relationship. Has he ever come back to you or approached you after the divorce? I know you lived not, in fear of it, but did he actually do that? Not after the divorce was final. I got, I would, get, I would still get drunken messages and things before the divorce was final. Um, I had consisting of what threats or I love you come back to me. Those no, things. never. I love yous. It was always kind of like you ruined my life type things. Right. And there was a lot of third party messaging, like, you know, a friend of a friend would send me this message being like, you know, you're a terrible person. Like, I can't believe you ruined his life that way and things like that. Um, but once the paperwork was final, I was able to, kind of cut the cord as far as thankfully we didn't have any children together. So there wasn't that tie to hold us. And I was able to, you know, change my number and block all of the things that he had. And so other than my physical address that didn't change, I was able to really distance myself in other ways so that I could have that kind of clean break. And thankfully, as far as I know, he never, after the divorce was final, he never contacted me. You mentioned that getting back into the dating world was tricky because of 
the trust issues and the self-worth issues and all that sort of um, stuff. What would be your, like, what were you looking for now in a, in a new relationship? So I think the most important thing that I found, um, I am now happily married to a wonderful man. Congratulations. I saw the ring on your finger. Thank you. And actually, it's super recent. Um, we just got married at the beginning of this month, actually. But Congratulations. Well, thank you. But the very first thing that he showed me that I had never experienced before was like that true putting someone else first kind of mentality. Like the first time that it, and it, I want to say it was something really simple, like I needed to do an errand and I didn't have time to do it. And he just did it without asking, like without even telling me and just like what I want to say it was like picking up a prescription or something silly like that. And he had just done it and brought it home and like, didn't make a big deal. It was a very little thing. And it was just like, I wasn't used to someone else putting me first. Yeah. And though that little bit of like, respect and love was just it kind of overwhelmed me because I was like, what did I do to deserve this? Yeah. And it's hard I didn't when you realize have that, that I, you just do. Issues. Yeah. Yes. You, you know just the, do. The little things with me, with my husband is like, if we run out of milk, he's like, I'll go down the street and get it. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's such stupid little things. Like he would put the toothpaste on my toothbrush and then just leave it on the side of the sink. Aww. So it was ready when I, and it's so, that's so silly. Right. But it was just, the little it was thing. just it showed me that he was thinking of yeah, me even yeah. in this tiny moment and those yeah. were things I wasn't used to yeah beautiful super corny <laughs> but <laughs> super cute are you still a police officer I am still a certified police officer I don't do that as my full-time job anymore but right. I still I still technically have that certification yes I don't know what the difference is between being uh, a uh, a cop and then being certified but not I don't I don't get that so explain I, please <laughs> <laughs> so um I don't that isn't what I go to work and do every day anymore yeah. but I could if I wanted to I still have the ability like if I wanted to go get a job as a police officer I still have all of the certifications that I need to go do that right. but it's not what I do and how long do you hold those certifications for after you leave um three years okay all right here in new hampshire what was it's different in other states okay what was the catalyst for you leaving the police force or law enforcement as you guys call it over there (laughs) did i get it right the catalyst for that was really just um my own health and mental health um you know, it started to get to that point where in order to take care of me, I had to take care of me and stop taking care of so many other people. Yeah. But I did it for, I mean, I had 10 years in and that felt like a good contribution. (laughs) Yeah. What are you doing now? Can I ask? I'm I'm writing. I'm an author now. So so you're a full-time author. Yep. Fantastic. So the degree is finally coming in handy. (laughs) The degrees are finally coming in handy. (laughs) They haven't for a long time, but now they are. So have you written, is this your first book, um, He Loves Me Not, or are there, are there other books as well that we can find on Amazon? This is the first one that's that's published. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I've got a second one that will be out in October, but this is the first one that's available is He Loves Me Not. 
Do you have a title for the second one in October? I do. It's called, I, I actually just announced this today. So you're like the first person that I'm telling other okay. than Instagram. I love that. And the, the title of the second one is A Picture Worth a Thousand Words. Okay. And is that on pre-order now? Not yet. Okay. We got to get the uh, cover art done and then then it'll be on pre-order. Okay. And that's in October. So everyone mm-hmm. needs to look out for that as well. Absolutely. What advice would you give people, given that you've lived through this, what advice and what takeaways have you got from this situation that you lived through for others? I think the biggest thing is we need to talk about this more. Yeah. I truly believe that if I had known at a young age, maybe not 11, but young enough that when I first started dating, I would have known the signs of a toxic relationship and the red flags, Mm. then I think that things might have been different. Mm. And I know that when I was in high school and was of dating age, that all of the talking that we did about domestic abuse and domestic violence was all this like, someday problem. Like when you're married someday, this could be a problem. But the truth is, teens dating violence is a thing and Mm. teens are dating. And so Mm. they need to know these signs and they need to know these red flags just as much as anyone else does. And we, I feel like a lot of times we treat these teenage relationships like they're not serious. So we don't worry about that kind of thing. But my teenage relationship turned into the rest of, you know, could have been the rest of my life. And it was a toxic, dangerous situation. So we need to take them seriously and we need to talk about them. And I think that there needs to be age-appropriate conversations. And potentially, I think, and I say this as as someone who's not a parent, um, so obviously I have a very limited view to for this conversation, but I think that there needs to be a an age-appropriate conversation in regards to this is what a toxic relationship looks like, don't accept this sort of behaviour, because then that messaging gets into the psyche and and before it's too late and it's not a yeah I don't, I don't I don't know what the solution thing is but I think that if you start those conversations and at least it assists well I think you're on the right track because a toxic relationship doesn't have to be a romantic relationship yeah. you can have toxic friendships you can have toxic family relationships so if you have that conversation in a not in a just a to- toxic relationships exist and this is the kind of behavior you shouldn't accept it doesn't have to be in a dating sense that's a really so, good point actually yeah so you can start yeah. teaching an 11 year old about what they should be looking for in a friend and how they can be a good friend and what they should accept from their friends and and cousins and you know other family yeah. members whatever and basically be setting the foundation for those later on dating conversations while still teaching them what to look for in essentially a decent person. When you came to the realization that this relationship, romantic relationship that you in was toxic, did you then look at all of your relationships and cull friends as well that were toxic? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think when I had this realization, I combed through my whole life and looked at every relationship that I had to make sure that it felt like a safe relationship because mm. there were definitely a couple people in my life at that time that were essentially enabling me to be in that toxic relationship, which was just as toxic. 
and there were a couple other relationships that really really weren't good for my mental health so going through and combing through those relationships and figuring out like who I really should invest time and time and and love in mm. was almost a cleansing experience um for for healing with the book you mentioned that it's not a factual based book it's a fictional book but the the emotions of it are paralleled um what was the catalyst for writing the book? So um, the man that I married had two beautiful children from a previous relationship. and The one, one that of you're them, currently with? Yep, the one yeah. that I'm currently with. So I have two beautiful stepchildren, and one of which is an 11-year-old young woman. Mm. And I looked at her and realized someday she's going to be dating and in these situations, and if – we don't start talking about this and educating young people about this early enough. She could be in this situation. And that terrified me. And I didn't want anyone else to have to go through what I went through and especially not her. Um, she was kind of my catalyst. And so I thought that putting that very expensive degree to work would be the greatest way I could do that. And so I started writing this book and, um, if it if it can reach one person and show them, you know, kind of point them in the direction of healthy relationships, then I think it's been successful. Well, thank you so much, Nina, for coming on. The uh, title of the book is He Loves Me Not, and the new one that's out in October is, oh, what was the title of it? A Picture Worth a Thousand Words? That's right. Okay, fantastic. Thanks, Nina. Thank you so much for coming on, and thank you for sharing your story. I think it's a really important one to share. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. Bye.